0: All right, why don't we jump into today's message? Father in heaven, I give you thanks for your word, for the way it instructs and guides and teaches us. We pray that as we open it up and hear from you, that you would speak to us, that we'd have eyes to see Jesus, who he is, what he's done. and we have hearts to respond in faith and trust. And so all the other things that we've brought in this week, we lay them before you and say, We want to receive from you. I pray this for your glory and our joy. Amen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, which is just, we've just been working through the Gospel of Matthew. And in many ways, the Gospel of Matthew is like this discipleship manual outlining who is Jesus, the call to discipleship, and what that looks like, and how Jesus equips his people. Now Jesus has been going around teaching with authority. He's not claiming uh, this is what this person says. This is how it's interpreted. He actually teaches with authority. You have heard it said, but I say to you is one of the things you see in the Sermon on the Mount. His authority is not derived from others. And you see him going around healing people who have illnesses, people who are paralyzed, people who are blind and deaf, casting out evil spirits from people, raising people from the dead and even forgiving people of their sins and naturally this is going to draw some attention from people from religious leaders and from crowds of just uh, your everyday person and what we're going to do today is look at one of those reactions to jesus and what he is doing and the way we're going to do it is a little bit different than other weeks other weeks we read the whole passage and then we work it through it this week we're just going to almost go like a few verses at a time uh Full disclosure, Jesus gets pretty intense here in uh, what he says, uh, and I think it's worth it just to go through it in this way. And so we're going to start in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 12. Then they brought him, being Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? Here's what you need to know. A few things. One is I've drawn some things uh, from a guy named Joshua Porter. And in the mind of biblical authors, there's this correlation throughout the Bible between demonic oppression and physical illness or suffering. And Matthew's not trying to say there's demons behind everything or behind every single illness. But what he and Jesus understand is that there's this connection between the physical and the spiritual realm. The physical being visible and the spiritual being unseen, but not any less real. If you are a fan of the TV show Stranger Things, you will remember the Upside Down. That's kind of like the spiritual realm. Not everyone can see it. It exists, though. The spiritual realm, in this realm, there are autonomous beings, spiritual beings, with their own wills, who are powerful enough to affect or influence the physical world. Now, as far as Scripture teaches, when you think of the whole of Scripture, it teaches that sickness and and suffering are evil things that they are the outcome of a fallen and corrupted world. How? In part, as a result of a spiritual being who who was given the title the Satan, which means the accuser, he tempts humanity to rebel against God and his way, to resist trusting him and to listen to him instead. The Satan is not a benevolent spiritual being. He's a cunning liar, a deceiver, a corrupter who enslaves humanity and draws them to live in subtle but destructive ways. And this is all at work as Matthew tells us the story that we will be looking at. Jesus heals this man and in so doing he casts out an evil spirit and Jesus restores this man physically, yeah, but also spiritually. And we're told that the crowd's response when they see what happens is, could this be the son of David? This isn't a question that's expressing both some level of faith, but also doubt, faith contending with doubt. It couldn't be, could it? The son of David was this royal title for the Messiah rooted in the Old Testament, specifically in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where Nathan speaks to David prophesying that one of his sons would be king forever. This is what it reads. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this title, son of David, carried with it all these messianic hopes of the kingdom that God would establish and that it would last forever. And this reign of God would bring God's restorative goodness, justice, healing, peace to the world. He would set people free from their oppressors. And this king would be God's chosen instrument to bring this about, to restore creation, to judge evil perpetrated by human beings and spiritual beings evil would have its day in court evil would be uh, confronted and judged and so the crowd is saying could this really be him it couldn't be could it it's a question that the crowd is asking in that moment but matthew through his gospel is trying to get his listeners to ask that question who has this kind of authority to do this this kind of power people are being drawn to jesus they're beginning to open themselves up to his influence they are beginning to open themselves up to this holy spirit's work in jesus and of course look at it when you see what jesus is doing what happens when people come into contact with him that they begin to experience forgiveness wholeness joy sight hearing their bodies functioning the way their bodies were meant to people moved out of isolation and into community people once enslaved and suffering by evil spirits, now set free and healed of their maladies. And you think, wow, could this really be it? Could this be the son of David? Maybe it is, people wonder. You can feel this sense of hope for a people who are oppressed by a Roman Empire and by these spiritual presences bubbling up, this hope bubbling up. But what happens afterwards? Well, we're told in verse 24 but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Notice the contrast. Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? And then uh, the man, no, this fella, this fellow here is only doing this by Beelzebub. Now, the Pharisees, they were this group of religious leaders. They wanted to quelch this movement that seems to be developing around Jesus. Jesus is only able to do it because he is empowered by evil spirits. Notice they don't deny his authority, his power. They can't. There's way too many people who have witnessed him and actually experienced his power. So what can they do? They've already rejected that he is the Messiah. They can't say that his power and authority come from God because they don't actually think that's the case at all. So they discredit the source of his power. He only does it by Beelzebub. This is a name that shows up in the Old Testament uh, as the name of a pagan god. And around the time of Jesus, it had come to be used to basically describe a high-ranking or noteworthy evil spirit, which is why they can say it's the prince of demons. What we have in this moment, then, is these religious leaders inserting themselves between what the Spirit of God is doing in Jesus and what the Spirit of God is doing in people, in the crowds. They're coming right in between it. They are trying to undermine and thwart people's trust in Jesus. He's empowered by the devil. You can't trust him. The seed that is beginning to germinate in people as they encounter Jesus is having poison poured onto it in order to stop it from growing. So how does Jesus respond to this accusation? In verse 25, we're told Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Jesus responds by essentially saying, If I'm removing evil, how can I be using evil? Evil spirits intend to harm, injure, and destroy. Why would they undo their own work? How can they cooperate with someone seeking to ruin them? That's what his initial question is to them, what their response is. And on one level, that, that makes a ton of sense. Having said that, there is some precedent in the Bible and in church history of evil spirits performing good miracles with a malicious intent. And it's really to distract from Jesus. You can see in 2 Th- Thessalonians 2, verse 9, where Paul warns that Satan will use or will work and use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders to lie and distract people from Jesus. And so one of the ideas that we can draw then is that when we see a miracle, it's asking, does it meant to draw you away or towards Jesus? Away from or towards Jesus? Now, secondly, Jesus carries on in his response to their accusation. And he says in verse 27, If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. If I'm driving out demons through this demon, how do your sons drive them out? Exorcisms in the Bible were not rare things, and Jesus wasn't the only one doing them. There were other Jewish people, including Pharisees, uh, conducting them, and there were even non Jews doing them. And so, what makes Jesus unique, though, is how he does them. Through a single word, he casts them out. There's no spell, there's no incantation. He's not manipulating something, he just speaks, and it's done what the pharisees are accusing jesus of though is of doing the work of the evil one think about what they're saying they're saying the the source of these healings these restorative works people's ability to walk all these different things these remarkable teachings they don't come from god but they come from the devil you're calling what is good evil they aren't simply saying jesus is his teaching is false they are saying that the person jesus is false he is a false teacher they don't just contend with his teaching, they contend with who he is. And so Jesus redirects their question back onto them. Where do you guys get your power from to, draw, to, draw, uh, to drive out demons? You guys do it as well, but where are you getting your authority from? He's making them answer the question because they're accusing him of this. Jesus continues with uh, what will be the central of verse and idea, and it's in verse 28. He says, but... If it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here's the idea where the Spirit is at work, the kingdom is present. The Spirit has been present throughout Matthew's Gospel. It's the Spirit who enables Mary to miraculously conceive in Matthew 1. It's the Holy Spirit who rests on Jesus in his baptism as the Father declares, this is my Son in whom I am pleased in Matthew 3. It is the Spirit who leads Jesus into the wilderness in Matthew 4 and leads him into victory over Satan. It's the Spirit who, we are told, will give us words of defense in Matthew 10 when we stand before people and we have to make a defense for it. Jesus And it is the Spirit now working to deliver captives through the work of Jesus in our passage. See, the Spirit's task is to honor Jesus first by bringing him into the world and then by defending his messianic cause, his work, his mission. And if the Spirit of God has done this work, then the kingdom is here, Jesus is saying. The kingdom has overtaken you. It's not that it will come in some distant day, but that it has begun that the presence of the kingdom isn't on its way. It's not simply something that arrives just in the future. It has arrived, and it's surprisingly overtaken you. Now, how can it be here? What does he mean by this? I think it means two things. Wherever we see people healed, the hungry fed, where we see captives set free from demonic influence and in Salem, where we see sins forgiven and reconciliation taking place, the kingdom is present. And where do we see these things? Wherever Jesus goes. Therefore, as one guy puts it, the presence of Jesus Christ is the presence of the kingdom. Jesus is the kingdom in person. This is the kingdom that is present and it is a future reality because he's here. The kingdom is here, but not in its fullness. It's already here, but not in its fullness yet which is why we still see evil, sin, suffering, and why we see faith in Jesus being stamped out in this account. We live even now in this tension. But Jesus carries on. He's not done responding to his accusers. And so in verse 29, he says, Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Jesus is saying no one can just rob a strong man unless something is done about the strong man. And that's said in this context of driving out demons. What he's actually saying is remarkable because this is language that Jesus is saying or implying to say this is what I've done to Satan. I have entered the house, the world, the prince of this world. He's strong, but I have bound him up. I have defeated him and I can take back what rightfully belongs to me. Let me read to you from Isaiah 48, where you actually see this type of picture of God speaking. And this is what he says. He says, uh, what, what it says it says, can plunder be taken from warriors or captives be rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. Jesus is saying, I have bound and defeated the strong enemy and now I am retrieving what belongs to me. So what is it that Jesus has come to retrieve? It's you and I. It's humanity. Jesus understood his mission in part as warfare against the enemy. And the apostles would go on to proclaim this. You can see this in Acts uh, chapter 10. Peter is preaching and he proclaims, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. You'll read on in 1 John chapter 3 that John will write, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. How Jesus does this is through his life, death, and resurrection. He undermines, he destroys the work of the enemy. And in, in, in Colossians, the Apostle Paul, he'll write something similar. He'll say, in verse 15 of chapter 2, he'll say, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he's referring to these spiritual principalities and powers, he said, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus has defeated the enemy. He has bound him up and he has come to retrieve, to reclaim what is rightfully his. He is the creator. He has come to restore what has been corrupted and broken. And in order to do that, the enemy has to be bound up. The fifth thing Jesus will say in verse 30 is, Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. You know, if there were ever like a passage you would want to go to, if someone just thought that Jesus was mostly kind of like neutral and kind of a nice teacher, um, but he didn't think too much of himself, that was just overinflated, disciples getting too excited, you could come to a passage like this and say, no, he's not very neutral at all. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Listen to him. He's saying, you have to make a decision about me. I am not just a nice man. I am not a nice teacher with magic powers. I'm more than just a great philosopher or teacher. I'm more than just a rabbi. I'm more than just a healer. I am more than a holy, enlightened man. You cannot be neutral about Jesus because he's not neutral about himself. Choose to follow me. Choose to do life with me. Or choose life against me. There is no in-between. There's no fence to straddle. Indifference is rejection in practice. Similarly, and I think the disciples need to hear this, you gather with me or you scatter against me. Gathering is inviting others to come and know him. In other words, you can't just say Jesus is king and savior of your life, of this cosmos. You can't say he's the God incarnate. You can't say he's the way, the truth, and the life, but simultaneously say that his work of gathering people to himself, a.k.a. evangelism, is wrong, that you shouldn't do it or that you cannot do it. Jesus says, no, you gather with me because you're with me. This is what I do. I've come to gather, to retrieve. You be part of it with me. There's a work to be done. The work of Jesus is to gather people to him, and the work of his disciples is to gather people to him. And we do that together. We must do all that we can to gather others to Jesus. It's not just simply us gathering to one another, but we actually seek to encourage others. We cease to be the people Jesus intended to be, intended us to be, when we become fearful or Uh, When we become fearful of uncomfortable conversations. When we are fearful of sharing that we identify as followers of Jesus. And if we live in that way, over time, we become inwardly focused on our lives and our community. Rather than seeing ourselves as people sent by Jesus. To make what Jesus is like, who he is, what he has done, known in our world. And so this means a few things. One, it means that the way that we live or our conduct matters. The way that we live, our lives, it points to what he is like. It's not simply a matter of avoiding certain things and doing other things. It's a matter of who are you with in the everyday Are you with him? Come to me. Abide with me. Follow me. There's this constant invitation to do life with him in all that we do to see that he actually wants to be part of it and lead us in it. Does the way you conduct your life actually demonstrate that you're with him? Because if you do, it begins to look like gentleness towards enemies and the weary alike. So Jesus can be confronted and accused of all these things he's accused of here and the way he responds to his so-called enemies is in gentleness. But it's also gentleness towards the weary. It begins to look like forgiveness to those who hurt us, kindness towards the sick, compassion towards all who are hurting and helpless, prayer for those in positions of authority even though we disagree with so much, generosity with everything that you have, mercy to the poor, attention to the marginalized. It looks like this quiet confidence in who God says you are and what he thinks about what you're doing. It looks like all of that because that's what Jesus looks like. And so when we choose Him and to do life with Him, these are the things that begin to develop in our lives. But our thoughts matter too. The way we think about people, events, and things all point to what we ultimately believe about who Jesus is and what He's done and doing in our world. Jesus, though the Son of God, we're told, thought it was good to become human and to become a servant and to lay down His life in service of others. It wasn't reluctantly done. We're told he did it for the joy set before him. He thought and believed it was good. God incarnate. Jesus delighted in the scriptures. He delighted in the work of his father and what the father wanted to do. And his thoughts were centered on doing the will of the father. Do our thoughts reflect this kind of infatuation with knowing and doing what our heavenly father wants? Of actually being with our Heavenly Father. See, our conduct and our thoughts point to who we truly believe Jesus is. But here's the thing it's not simply our our, our conduct and our thoughts, it's also our words. Our words contribute to gathering others to Jesus or repelling. Our words are central to proclamation, to explaining, to making sense of who Jesus is. That's why in Acts, we will see over and over again, there's this theme of the word of God being proclaimed and people responding to God's move. The early church proclaimed what God had done in Jesus. They explained the meaning of things that were happening. Like on Pentecost, people are filled with the Spirit and beginning to proclaim what God has done in languages they didn't know how to speak. And people are confused and they're like, are they drunk? No, I can't be drunk. It's like 12 in the afternoon. And Peter explains, no, this is what God promised. That this is what God promised he would do by the prophet Joel. And he he explains it, that this is the outpouring of the Spirit on all people. In another story in the book of Acts, you'll hear about Philip and how Philip will explain to this Ethiopian traveler who's heading back to Ethiopia as he reads the book of Isaiah, and he's reading Isaiah 53, and he reads these lines: He was tied up like sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear, and so he did not open his mouth. And in his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? The Ethiopian is reading this, trying to make sense of it because he doesn't even understand what he, who it's talking about. And Philip comes along and says, That's Jesus Christ who has come. He proclaims and explains what it is that God has done through his mouth, through his words. We are a people sent out to make Jesus known through our conduct by the way that we think and through our words, the way we speak, the things we talk about, the one we proclaim and make sense of. And one of the best ways you and I can do that is actually by sharing what he's done in our lives, who he has shown himself to be in our lives. Because all of us are able to speak from a place of confidence when we talk about what he's done in our lives. The challenge here, though, is that you cannot give what you don't have. And so, if you don't actually have a relationship that is active and dynamic where he's leading you, you won't have much to share. And so, the invitation is to be with him so you can receive what he has to give you and to gather with him. But I think it starts with being with him. Finally, Jesus is going to warn his accusers in verse 31 he says so i tell you every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven but blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven anyone who speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven but anyone who speaks against the holy spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come see the pharisees appointed their finger at Jesus' spirit and condemned him and so jesus flips the table on them every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven of people it can be forgiven Jesus shows here how wide the mercy of God is, but he warns that there is a kind of sin that can't be forgiven. And he's not talking about a carelessness in our words or actions. He's pointing to something much deeper within us. Here's what Frederick Dale Bruno uh, will say, how, how he explains it. In context, in all three Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, the sin against the Spirit is not some arbitrary curse of deity or some foolish remark. About either God or the Spirit per se. It is trying to ruin Jesus in the eyes of others. When you dig deeper, at the root of this is this unwillingness to trust Jesus, an in- impenitence, an unworried adamancy. It's not about this accidental or careless act, it's about an indifferent state in our hearts. It's one thing to say something false about Jesus and unintentionally dishonor him because you don't fully understand him, you don't believe him, that's, that's one thing. But it's something altogether different to intentionally speak against the spirit powerfully at work in Jesus and question his motives so that other people don't trust him. That's the difference Jesus is warning the Pharisees, his accusers of. Now why is that unforgivable though? Why is that unforgivable? I'm not going to tell you. No, I'm just kidding. I will. Because I think a number of us wonder, what is that? What is going on here? Some of us perhaps have even been troubled by this. Why is it unforgivable? Because so long as you call the source of what Jesus does evil, you cannot receive what he has come to bring. Forgiveness. So long as you see the lives transformed, healed, forgiven, people set free from addictions, from demonic oppression, and reject them as coming from something evil, you can't be forgiven by Jesus. N.T. Wright explains it like this. He says, Jesus is warning against looking at the work of the Spirit and declaring it must be the devil's doing. There should be a slide for that. Jesus is warning against looking at the work of the Spirit and declaring it must be the devil's doing. If you do that, it's not just that you won't be forgiven, you can't be, because you have just cut off the very channel along which forgiveness could come. Once you declare that the only remaining bottle of water is poison, you condemn yourself to dying of thirst. Do you see what's at work here? So here's what I would say. If you are in any way worried that you've committed this, this sin against the Spirit, you haven't, because the very fact that you care reveals that you're not indifferent to him. This isn't about saying, look, I'm not sure if I believe in him. This is something altogether different. So Jesus will conclude his ju- uh, with this judgment. He says in verse 12, make a tree good. Sorry, in verse 33, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? He's not pulling punches anymore. For the mouth speaks from what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings out evil things out of the evil stored in him. But I tell you that everyone will give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Now, Jesus' call here is to the Pharisees. But I think there's something here for all of us. See, he is hoping that in confronting them, he's he's using like this prophetic kind of language, that they will actually respond turn that they will see what he is saying and in this moment i actually begin to see how they're, they're mistaken and so he calls them to become a good tree to make a tree good this call is a call to be transformed you can tell the quality of a tree by the quality of its fruit and this is like that that greek proverb that the character of a man is known by his words our doing comes out of our being Fruit comes from roots. Speech comes from the heart. And Jesus is speaking, saying, my teaching, my way, my works are enough proof to to show that I am not under the, the Satan's power because it's restored a goodness you see me bringing wherever I go. And you know that this comes from God, just like good fruit comes from a good tree. But you have called it evil because your hearts are sick. You see goodness, but you can't even call it good. You need to be transformed. Your hearts need to be full of the love of God, the grace of God. You don't need more influence, more power. You don't need more money. You need to know my father the way I know him. Because when you do, your heart will be ruled by love, and the fruit of it will be good. You see, good people are not made by resolutions that, oh, I'm going to be good but from a change in their being, from a transformation. And what Jesus suggests is that there's this internal reservoir that every human being has. And that like a well, that has been poisoned. So it can't actually give what it's supposed to. The well needs to have the poison removed and new clean water poured into it. Otherwise, what is pulled out of it will only hurt others and make everyone who drinks it sick. And our words are like that. Our words have power to wound, destroy, curse, discourage, and bitter and enslave. And some of us know that because we've lived it through the words of others. But we have also been people who have said things most often to the people we love most that we wish we could take back because they were these types of things. Augustine, he once preached, the person must be changed first. Let me make sure that's spelled right. Yes, changed first, that their works may be changed. Christ found us all corrupt trees but gave power to become children of God to them that believe on his name. Good people are made by a transformation of their heart through God's love poured into their hearts by the Holy Spirit. And this is a love that is not deserved. It's an extravagant love, a love that lays itself down for its enemies. It's a love that is revealed to us on the cross in Jesus When Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. What you and I, like the Pharisees, need is actually a renewed heart. You need your loves reordered by the one who so loved you that he came for you and laid his life down for you. Because when that happens, then what comes out of us will be Words used to bless, to heal, to forgive, to encourage, to build up, to set free, to speak truth, to confront evil, to make Jesus and his way known, to gather people to him. Could this be the son of David? Jesus emphatically declares to you and I, yes, it is. It is. And whoever believes in me, will have these streams of living water in them. And what they share with the world will not be poison, but new life. They will become children of God. They will bring my restorative goodness to the world. And that is the invitation that he makes for every single human being. Anyone who will hear his call and in a sense that is what you and I